Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard to part three of the Antifa Files, Antifa America. Now, we've been taking you through the history of Antifa in Europe. That's where it originated. So we went through already the founder of Antifa, Ernst Talman. We walked you through his entire history, how he was handpicked by the USSR, by the Bolsheviks, by the Soviets, to be their man in Berlin. He was the head of the Communist Party of Deutschland in the Weimar Republic. He was later imprisoned and executed by Adolf Hitler. We talked about the communism. We talked about the Spanish Civil War, the communists, the Antifa that ran there throughout the 1930s. We then got into the 1960s, the 1970s, touched on the 1980s with what? The Red Army Faction. Red Army Faction was a KGB-sponsored terror organization, communist terror organization that operated throughout West Germany. You watch Die Hard, Hans Gruber. Those guys are based on the Red Army Faction. But how did Antifa arrive in America? I think most people, like myself, First, remember hearing about Antifa in 2016, the attacks on Trump rallies that took place throughout that year. And then, of course, January 20th, 2017, when Antifa conducted a massive attack on President Trump's inauguration. Notice they never talk about that. See, I was actually there. I lived through it. And in fact, my pre-inauguration ball the night before, the deplorable came under heavy Antifa attack as well. And so people said, who are these people dressed in black, screaming, chanting, attacking us? Well, let's walk back. Talk back all of that a little bit. See, when they all dress in black, that's referred to as the black block. Where did the black block originate? Believe it or not, the term was coined, again, West Germany, a hotbed of Antifa activity, the 70s and 80s, between squatters who were bohemians, part of this left-wing bohemian group called the, the Autonomen. In German, the phrase is der Schwarzblock. And when the West German police would carry out eviction actions against the Autonomen, the activists would defend their squats by wearing heavy black clothing, helmets, ski masks, boots, and carrying melee weapons such as clubs, projectiles, and shields. They would respond to police officers by constructing barriers and throwing Molotov cocktails. Right from the start in 1980, the black blocks of West Germany were as militant and violent as those that would become commonplace in the United States 40 years later. The West German police eventually defeated the Autonomen with new laws that were passed banning the carrying of weapons by protesters and the wearing of helmets and padding during protests. These laws would likely trouble or likely have trouble getting passed here in the United States due to liberal jurisdictions. But this predated the rise of the internet, and that's what people need to understand. Because the black blocs back then, the way that this tactic spread throughout Europe and then eventually North America was key to the spread of the international anarcho-communist movement. And believe it or not, it was helped along by what? The punk scene of the 1980s. And this, of course, as everybody who's listened to any you know, punk rock 
knows that there was a close association between the far left and punk. Many bands, of course, were openly political and spread the word in fan magazines and tours, especially across Western Europe and then eventually into the United States. There was a black block used at least once in a protest against the Gulf War in Washington, D.C. all the way back in 1991. This may have been the earliest use of a black block in the United States. Now, there are three types of black blocks. There's the open block, which is a general call that goes out to all interested to gather and act in a single block. Open meetings that are held to discuss goals and strategies. The second type is the semi-open block. This organization takes place in secret between people who know and trust each other, but when the block itself comes together, others in the block in block attire are invited to it, and then there's a closed block. In a closed block, the participants prepare in secret, they all know each other, and they do not allow anyone to come in. And now black blocks, of course, will work with affinity groups. So we saw this in 2020. The black blocks would affiliate with the Black Lives Matter protesters. Of course, in 2020, they were all wearing masks. So Antifa was able to seamlessly work into those crowds. Now, in general, unlike most paramilitary units, black blocks are not hierarchical. They pride themselves on the decentralized structure. Mapping, of course, is integral to the black block planning cycle. They will lay down st uh, staging areas, main routes, escape route, locations where the police will mass target uh, for violence and spots for resources. Black block participants typically will write down the phone number of legal contacts on their bodies in permanent marker. They'll cover up tattoos, remove identifying piercings. They won't carry ID, uh, anarchist literature. In some cases, they're told cell phones must be left to their staging areas. Um, this is, of course, currently. Now, something to really understand, there are three tiers to a black block, green, yellow, and red. The green zone is the sanctuary. They are the ones who are sort of your, your day trippers, your people who are there, they're just dressed up, they want to wear black, but they don't want to participate in violence. Then there's your yellow. Your yellow tier is a pyramid. So your yellow are your organizers. They're the ones directing traffic. And then finally, you have your reds. And the red Antifa, those are the ones that are going to commit actual direct action. Now, I saw this when I used to infiltrate Antifa meetings myself. And we've seen this in other operations that we've run infiltrating those meetings in Washington, D.C. Believe it or not, I actually infiltrated the own meeting where they were planning to attack my deplorable. Unfortunately for us, because we knew what they were planning, we had police, we had the riot squad, we had everyone on standby. Now, that doesn't mean that violence didn't take place, but it did mean that we were able to keep everyone safe. And we duly, of course, reported it to the Metropolitan Police Department of Washington, D.C., to the Secret Service, to anyone else who was, who was willing to listen, and the FBI. And as you can imagine, the FBI was very, very interested in that. <laughs> yeah, right. So you have to be clear. Antifa and these black blocks, which started all the way back in the 1970s, they've become advanced. They've become sophisticated. They know how to operate. Go back and look at the George Floyd riots. One person runs by a room, a, a uh, display case with a window, smashes it with a hammer. The next person runs up, throws in a smoke bomb, throws in a cherry bomb, throws in some other kind of improvised explosive. These are operations. When they attack someone with milkshakes, what happens first? The milkshake goes into blind, like what happened with Andy No. Then the rest come in to pummel so he can't identify them. Understand, 
This is part of their plan. So the black bloc was now there in the United States in the early 90s. Now, for various reasons, Antifa targeted and found a lot of purchase in the group that later became Antifa in the Pacific Northwest. This all culminated in 1999 at what was called the Battle of Seattle. And believe it or not, this was an anti-globalist, anti-globalization protest that turned into a riot. Why? Because Antifa was protesting, I kid you not, Antifa was protesting at the time the accession of China into the World Trade Organization and the development about of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Now, they saw this as arms of global capitalism, and that's why they were against it from the left. But it's actually kind of interesting that when you look back at 1999, that back then, the Washington State uh, Convention Center, Antifa, was actually against globalism. You'll never hear that today. So why Seattle? And why are Seattle and Portland so heavily associated with Antifa? Where did this movement come from? Well, I talked before about music, and you can't separate that. Now, of course, there was also a connection between punk and metal and skinheads. And one of the reasons for that, uh, the Pacific Northwest targeting, is because at the time, the Aryan Brotherhood and many other neo-Nazi groups were targeting the Pacific Northwest because they were looking at this for the purposes of the resettlement of a white or the establishment of a white homeland. So they moved from California and other places to the Pacific Northwest. Then what do you have in Seattle? You have the outbreak of grunge. Uh, the whole grunge scene explodes there. Sub pop comes out. Of course, Nirvana famously, Kurt Cobain, obviously an anarchist comes out of all of this. And by the way, I'm not bashing Kurt Cobain, blah, blah, blah. I'm, making, I'm, just, I'm just pointing out that this is what was going on at the time. I listen to Nirvana's calm down. That uh, you have this whole scene erupting and then on the backs of grunge, on the backs of everything else that comes out of Seattle, you have this huge Antifa movement that's brought along with it. And Kurt Cobain used to have stickers on stage, you know, throw a rock at a cop, punch Nazis, all that stuff. So... At the Battle of Seattle, November 30th to December 3rd, 1999. You know, Kurt Cobain had since departed at this point. These were riots that went on again and again throughout all of this. You had people, you had protesters through what they called at the time the Direct Action Network, anarchists coming in from all over Washington State, all over Oregon to conduct vandalism attack police officers, try to shut down the entire thing. This is one of the first places that you saw these types of tactics. And of course, the ubiquitous black bloc was all over it. But the point was to shut down, shut down the organization, shut down the meetings. And back then, guess what? They called in two battalions of Army National Guardsmen to shut down the riots. Major clashes took place. Rocks, bottles, police concussion grenades. The black bloc was all over the place. In fact, some areas of this, some areas of the Battle of Seattle, 
even took place on the very same ground that years later in 2020, about what, 21 years later, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, the CHAZ, would be set up again in clashes with police. And then later at the time, that mayor, Jenny Durkin, ordered the police to stand down and gave up, abdicated part of her city to Antifa. And at which point, my brother and I decided to infiltrate. We went into Chaz. We spent about a week there, day and night, switching uniforms, going in and out. But those same Antifa militants had developed from this earlier strain at the Battle of Seattle. There's a movie about this, believe it or not. The Battle in Seattle. You can go check it out. It's by Stuart Townsend, 2007 is when it came out. Now, of course, it takes, you know, this, you know, this take on, uh, you know, the protesters were people and, uh, you know, there were other people committing, committing attacks, et cetera. But point is, you can go actually go look at this. The police had a sense of being besieged. And there are, there are arguments back and forth whether or not Molotov cocktails were actually used. But for, in North America, the anarchists, the Antifa there, they viewed the World Trade Center riots, the Battle of Seattle, as a success. Because at the time, they wanted this discussion to come forward, believe it or not, of anti-globalization. You have to understand the numbers involved. There were nearly 40,000 Antifa anarchists and militants that showed up to this thing. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them were violent. But it is a huge piece of America's left-wing lost history. And that's what we're trying to explain through the Antifa files. Like the Spanish Civil War, like what's going on in Rojava in Syria right now with the Kurds, these are the type of things that the radical left, the far left, gloms onto. And so when they looked at the Battle of Seattle, romanticized it. And by the way, that led to the resignation of the police chief of Seattle, Norm Stamper. They got a resignation of a police chief out of it. And so for 20 years, really 10 years, Antifa continued to grow and fester and nest in Seattle. And all of this would come to a head in a decade's time during Occupy Wall Street. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the next segment because we have to understand that this is why Portland and Seattle saw these twisted dystopian networks grow. And it is ironic, by the way, and a lot of people point this out, that just like the white separatists believed in the early 1980s about the Pacific Northwest being this sort of, uh, you know, area of a white homeland or whatever, they still are some of the whitest cities in America today. And though Antifa doesn't talk about anti-globalization anymore, what do they talk about is diversity. We need diversity. We need more diversity. Diversity is our strength. And yet you go and look at any of the Antifa in there and guess what? They're all lily white. And they're all looking like a bunch of biodegenerate freaks. Every single one of them. 
And that's why we like posting their mug shots. And we will continue. Coming back up next, the Battle of Seattle and Occupy Wall Street. So let's fast forward from the Battle of Seattle to November 2011. Zuccotti Park, New York City. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street was one of the first mass movements that we saw in the internet era. Predated MAGA, predated Black Lives Matter, but it was very much driven by social media and driven by the internet. Now, what was Occupy Wall Street in response to? Well, it was a, it was in response to the global recession, the massive bailouts by government of the big banks, and the fact that you had the rich becoming so insanely richer while the people of the nations were starving. And that everybody who lived through the global financial crisis that wasn't on the winning side of it, you lost everything. For millennials and people in that generation, it meant you were sold a bill of goods. It meant that if you graduated college in the global recession, you were making less money than you would have been able to, to even service your loans, to even pay the interest. That's why many people are referring to the millennials as part of a lost generation, because so many put off family formation, put off home buying, so many of these acts that lead to family for, to lead to having families, having children, and then having more people in the workforce. And Occupy Wall Street was a response to a lot of that. A lot of that anger, those bailouts. And so the anti-consumerism magazine Adbusters, which is actually Canadian, set this off. The slogan, we are the 99% and you are the 1%. And so the Occupy movement started in Wall Street in New York City, Zuccotti Park, spread throughout the world. I remember seeing them in Philadelphia. And there were hippies and there were, it was, it was nasty and dishygienic. And, and in a lot of these cases, a lot of these cases, there were rapes and sexual assaults in the tent cities that took place there. And there were Antifa and there were black blocks. And I've always, I've always thought that it's, I don't know if it's ironic or just ridiculous, but that Occupy Wall Street was against Wall Street. And then Black Lives Matter was underwritten by Wall Street. So the very same people, and all they did was throw the word diversity and wokeism, white supremacy, systemic racism. It, I don't think this is what happened, but in my head, there's an interesting timing. As Steve would say, there are no conspiracies, but there are coincidences. Look at the timing. Wokeism gets unleashed. Cultural Marxism, which is just another word for, for wokeism, gets unleashed just two years after Occupy Wall Street. 
because suddenly people are talking about the banks and suddenly people are talking about the financial institutions. Ron Paul's out there and he's talking about the Fed. And they don't want people talking about that. So what starts getting pushed? Cultural Marxism. See, Marxism never worked in the United States. It was never able to really gain purchase because the United States is a massive middle class. Because the United States is not a pyramid structure like Imperial Russia or, uh, or China where people are, where there's a few at the top, there's some in the middle, and then the vast majority of people are at the bottom. No, America is, had a massive middle class and was more of a diamond shape. So how do you divide America if you can't divide it by class? Simple. You just add an additional element, and that element is race, gender, ethnicity, and suddenly you can get America falling over themselves. And you can get groups like Antifa, which are led by idiots, by the way. Go read Eric Hoffer, True Believer, to understand this. Every movement requires a devil, but not every movement requires God. Not every movement requires God, but every movement requires a devil. And so originally, Antifa's devil was out of communism. I should say their God was out of communism. And so their devil, the devil of communism is what? Capitalism. But if you notice, very interesting, Antifa doesn't talk about capitalism anymore. They don't talk about the 1%. They don't talk about Wall Street the way they did in 2011 that spread throughout the world. What do they talk about? Racism. Racism is the new devil. And racism is everywhere. You have to find it. Everyone's guilty of racism. And so it is not good enough to simply be not racist. You must be actively anti-racist. You must take part. And so they unleash these forces in order for everyone to stop paying attention to them. In order to sow chaos throughout the populists in the country and to change the entire paradigm around. To inflame ethnic tensions that in the United States, if you look throughout the 1990s, the early 2000s, they just didn't exist. They just didn't exist. Not the way they do today. This was unleashed on the United States. And Antifa was more than happy to do their part. Just like good little true believers. Because in the end, that's all they are. And so that's what led from 2011, Antifa protesting Wall Street, to 2020, when Antifa was more than happy to do the work of the 1% and to the work of Wall Street. And you saw group after group after group. Citigroup, Citibank, BlackRock, Blackstone, underwriting Black Lives Matter, underwriting these woke left-wing organizations, and the money that filters down every single time to Antifa and to their groups and their legal representation. So I talked before about the Antifa that attacked President Trump's inauguration and my pre-inauguration ball, the Deplore ball. 200 Antifa were mass arrested at Trump's inauguration. Do you know what happened to them? They were all set free. They were called the J-20 defendants. Washington, D.C. apologized to them. And Washington, D.C. even paid them a settlement of $1.5 million 
Oh, who they're represented by? That's right. The ACLU. So understand, Antifa has come to America, and they're here to stay.